Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Mitch Rosen here. First off, want to say hello to everyone out there who's joining us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining another Yield Street real estate webinar. I'm happy to have you and also happy to have Mike Taylor here. Mike is a sales director, regional sales director with Counterpoint Mutual Funds, which runs systematic alternative fixed income and equity strategies. Previously, Mike was the managing editor of Seek Alpha, a global investment research and analysis platform publishing more than 200 daily articles for basically 1,000 monthly subscribers. In addition, Mike's a CFA charter holder, an MBA from UC San Diego, and a BA from Georgetown University. Mike, pleasure to meet you again over Zoom. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. You know, we have a lot of topics to cover today, and I'm really eager to get started. The topic or the headline of today's conversation is really more about portfolio construction and what role, if any, does CRE have within that, that construct. And I think your experience working in the investment space on the mutual fund side and also your background at Seek and Alpha really can help provide us some insight here. And so I think we should just get kind of dig into it. And, and um, as this conversation follows, we'll get some questions and we'll uh, do our best to tackle those. So let's start off the bat, right? Stock market risk, fees, vehicles exposure. How do you think about just general construction of a portfolio for the investor that Yield Street's targeting? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now. I think return expectations across asset classes are pretty low, given that interest rates on treasuries and uh, investment grade corporate bonds are at historic lows. And then, you know, stock market valuations are also historically expensive, whatever kind of ratio you use. And so what we hear a lot from advisors and investors is a sense of not really knowing where to turn, being suspicious of sort of traditional asset classes, and maybe being a little bit more open of late to alternatives. So I think that that's kind of my interest in the commercial real estate space is that I think it kind of fits in this interesting hybrid space where some of these private investments, you could argue, are function a little bit like alternatives within a portfolio. So one of the things that I want to actually get from you, Mitch, is sort of 
I think a lot of people are familiar with the traditional sort of stock and bond allocations and the way to structure a portfolio more broadly. But in this environment where stocks and bonds may seem a little bit less attractive than they have historically, what kind of role commercial real estate investing might play? Right. And that's getting it back, which is great. So, you know, I think CRE, when you think about the sophisticated investors out there, and I think of hedge funds, I think of endowments, I think of family offices, the average family office has between 10 and 20% exposure to commercial real estate. And the vast majority of that oftentimes falls within the private credit side. It's not through public REITs. It's not through bonds of public REITs. It's through oftentimes private equity funds or direct investing in direct assets, whether it be debt or equity. And so when you think about the historical performance the last 20, 30, 40 years of those cohorts, real estate has really performed quite well and provided a really smoothing performance level that stocks and bonds may not provide in times of volatility. When you think about CRE as a general statement, whether it be leases or the time at which things move, the peaks and troughs are often much wider spread apart and the, and the drop and the peak is often not as high and low. Think about a public market, a stock or a bond, the volatility with that on a day-to-day basis and over a period of time can be highly differentiated. CRE is smoother. It just takes longer for the market to evolve and price discovery to happen. And so I'm obviously biased being in the CRE space, but I clearly believe that CRE has a home in the vast majority of investors' portfolios. And it could be a combination of the public read side, it could be the private credit side, whether it be debt or a fund. But I do think that it provides a lot of these advantages, tax advantages in some cases, a smoothing or lower volatility, less correlation to just generic stocks and bonds that most investors have vis-a-vis mutual funds or ETFs. There's also a cash current component, right? A lot of debt and or equities pay dividends, right? Or interest income. And in the, you mentioned treasuries right now, you know, 10 years, I think 75 basis points which is at a quite a historical low or close to it, you know, with inflation running at least one to 2%, your cash is effectively becoming worth less every day. You can't even keep up with inflation, let alone surpass it. And so I think people who need to invest capital have to look outside of the traditional stocks and bonds to find yield. And us and others like us are trying to find those attractive risk-adjusted profiles where there is a current return profile and that does protect principal. What do you think is driving that interest in current return? You know, you're talking about a type of investor that, you know, may have a, a larger asset base and may not necessarily. It's just always interesting to me what makes people look for current income or investors look for current income, whether they're institutions or whether they're high net worth individuals or, or what have you. Academically, it's sort of taken as a granted that there's always a way to generate cash, whatever assets you're invested in. So you mentioned current income as a kind of a value driver. I'm always curious about, about why that's the case. It's a good question. I mean, I think obviously it's individual dependent. I think about my parents, they're retired. They're in their mid to late seventies. You know, they have social security, they have some savings, but, uh, to live day to day and month to month, right? They desire some some cash flow, some passive cash flow, if you will. And you know, I think historically, mutual municipal funds, municipal bonds, had played a pretty large role in investors' portfolios, right? Well, tax-free, state-focused. I read an article yesterday that a bunch of mutual fund companies are actually terminating those plans because the demand is basically evaporated because rate yields are so low. There really is no incremental benefit on the yield profile after the tax benefits actually continue to offer them. 
which I think hasn't happened in the last 50 years. So I'd say for those cohorts, there is a desire to find a way to generate a monthly income. If you're younger and you have a much longer time horizon, you may be seeking uh, and you have a job and you're employed and you're saving for retirement. You probably don't have as much a need for a current income, but you want the capital growth. And so maybe you're maybe playing in more of a, a longer dated, longer exposed investment profile. But I think people are always thinking about, and I know I am myself, how do I create an ability to generate future cash flow from current cash sitting in a bank account? And there really is no great solution, honestly, and there's different ways you can approach it. But that's, I think, the view that people try to take. And that's, that's the view I take personally as well. Like, how do I take some of my savings that's sitting in a bank account, earning no return, and creating a matter by which I can earn a return back on it that I'm comfortable with, and that maybe can provide me with a longer duration of cash flows? That's fair. But I think that kind of brings us back to this question of when you're thinking of a portfolio more holistically, and you're looking at a commercial real estate allocation, where does it fit along this spectrum of, you know, we have really low yielding fixed income, publicly traded fixed income, and then we have equities, which are very, very volatile. Where within that portfolio space do these commercial real estate allocations fit? Yeah, that's, uh, everyone has different, I think, a risk tolerances and, and specific life events that they have to kind of solve for. My view is that you always want to mix, broadly speaking, a liquid component of your portfolio, an emergency fund, if you will, a fixed income component. But CRE really can span the breadth of those I just highlighted, right? You can have the public equities that's liquid. You can trade it on, a, on, a, on an app in two seconds and sell your stock if you need be. But real estate historically has provided very attractive long-term capital appreciation and income, right? When you think of some of the people that investors emulate in the world, they often actually make their money maybe in like, say, tech, and they actually end up doing real estate. I, I can name five of our borrowers who have actually been involved in different business lines, and they made a lot of money. So, you know what? I want to have a longer-term stable portfolio of cash flows for my my kids, my generations. And so real estate's often a place that wealthy folks put capital into because it's generational. It has significant tax advantages, depreciation against income, 1031 exchanges, and you can create trust for it. So not that our investors in Yield Street are maybe seeking out all those options, but those are some facts that make really real estate have a very tax advantage place within the IRS tax code that no other asset class has. So I think it has a home for it. If you want liquidity and are willing to give up a lower dividend return, like in a, an Equinix, which is a data storage REIT, I mean, their dividend yield is probably 2% right now, 2.5%. That's not that great. Where you could buy, you make, make an investment in a, in a debt instrument or a mortgage REIT that's earning maybe 8 9%. However, those are highly levered to mark-to-market repo lines. So there really is no great answer. I think you have to be prudent with kind of how much you put in each bucket diversify yourself and do your research and think through what you're trying to accomplish. And this kind of ties into a question we got from a listener right now. And the question was, to what degree is CRE impacted by COVID? You know, we've talked about this. Hotel retail has by far been the most impacted in dramatic fashion. Values are dramatically impaired on paper. There's not been that many transactions to point to where you can kind of try to get a sense of where valuations lie and where someone's going to put money in. But based on new appraisals or some deep lose, Values are dramatically impaired, and, and there's going to be a reckoning at some point for a lot of those borrowers where their forbearance runways are going to go away. And if you, at some point, the lender has to take some kind of action. It can't just sit there forever. And so I would say that to some degree, office is feeling some kind of a skittishness 
work from home has become more prevalent. I personally don't believe it's a permanent change, but for the foreseeable future, leasing volume is dramatically down. And if you need to lease up your space because you want to pay a mortgage uh, and refinance a mortgage as a borrower, you have to get tenants in there. And so maybe you lock in lower lease rates. I'd say multifamily, industrial, self-storage are probably the best performing asset classes. And probably I would classify as the winners of COVID, if you will, versus the retail hotel and, and to some degree office. And maybe the losers are those more impacted. But, you know, every market has its own dynamic. New York versus LA versus Chicago versus DC versus suburbs. You know, we can talk through all of that at some point. But I think for now, I would just highlight how sustainable is that dividend yield. And if there is a mark to market or a, a NAV reset, that dividend yield could get cut. And what you thought you were buying at an 8%, 9% dividend yield is leaving now maybe a 2 or 3%. It's happened before. It could happen again. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it has happened. In the private space, I would say that we are almost uniformly ignoring or passing on hotel and retail transactions right now. We are obviously looking at office, and I would say that industrial multifamily are primarily our focus. I would say retail is 100% off the table, but because there are some attractive pockets of retail, like grocery and shopping centers, where they are, I would say, Amazon resistant, nail salons, hair salons, restaurants, service businesses right, right now are being impacted by COVID disproportionately, but it's hard to foresee where grocery stores just go away entirely. And so pick the right spot, pick the right location. But I'd say private credit has yields, whether it be our loans on our platform or other people like us, that are, are fairly attractive, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent. I think it's hard to find that nowadays. And so I like that space and I'm also biased. I'm like playing out a bullish scenario on hotel just to, in my head. I just read an article that, you know, made the argument that COVID is more driven by kind of super spreader events and it's really mass indoor gatherings that drive a lot of the spread. And I think if that's the case, then potentially even indoor businesses like hotels where you have some one-to-one interactions, but people could, I think, maybe that behavior will start to change earlier than we think and hotels will see some resurgence in the coming months. I don't know, it's tricky to pick a bottom, but I think maybe as the understanding of the disease evolves, we might actually see some quicker, this is the contrarian in me. Well, uh, no, I, I would response. Actually, Mike, I would tell you that my longer term view on hotels is, is actually quite bullish. I okay. think people like to travel. I think people like an escape. I think business travel will return in some capacity at some future point when I can't tell you, but I do think it's, I don't think it's going away. I think the inter, the person to person face-to-face interactions that often necessitate successful transactions is, is an important part of um, is the business world. And so I don't think that's going away. There's probably too many hotels and there's too many okay. probably subpar hotels that have been able to succeed because demand was so high that will go away. Whereas contrasting that with retail, I think retail is in a cyclical and permanent deterioration. I think people right. have really changed the way they shop. I think in-person retail experiences have historically been pretty poor. Customer service isn't great. The checkout line is not great. Returning is not great. It's just not, a, it's not an enjoyable experience. I think that was always an inherent flaw that most retailers didn't do well, and it didn't invest the capital to do that. And online shopping has really supplanted that in many, many respects. I think with hotel, people want that experience. They want to go to that specific spot and do whatever that may be, whether it be see historical sites or sit on the beach for three days. I think that does come back. But I think you need to find lenders and borrowers who have the staying power to kind of get us through here. That's the concern I have in the near term, but longer term, I am quite positive on it. What are we going to do with all that retail space? 
you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a that's great awesome. question. Brookfield, if you know, brought, bought GGP about two years ago or so. They paid about $13 billion for it. And they had really prepared a, a lot of grandiose plans to convert a lot of these properties into multi-use, maybe build a, uh, a multifamily property on the site or a hotel, bring in some medical facilities or gyms or, you know, bigger users and, and create more of a, you hospitals. know, an ecosystem. Hospitals, right. Like that was another, uh, assisted living or skilled nursing was another thing that people talked about. Okay. And so I think what is happening right now, even just before COVID, but kind of leading into COVID or this year was that the acceleration of these businesses continuing to perform poorly, they don't like retailers and the economics of doing a hotel or doing multifamily, you can't convert every mall. You just can't, at least not in a reasonable period of time. And so what may have been like a three or four year secular shift, I think is going to be extended out to like 10, 12 years, right? Because there's only so many you can do at the same time. You want to make sure that the ones you, you do do actually end up being successful, whether it be a hotel or a multifamily, they're leased up. Generally speaking, malls are actually in pretty attractive locations. Often they're off highways near dense population uh, areas. And so there is inherent value in that land, but to extract it and create it takes a lot of capital and time. And so the current holders of those assets probably don't have a good amount of either. And that's really, I think, when you think about Brookfield being as, as, as well capital as they are, they have pulled away from some projects that kind of revolved around the strategy I just highlighted, multifamily, some hotel. They pulled away. One particular deal was highlighted in Vermont where they had an agreement with the city to get some tax breaks, put in some multifamily, improve the roads a bit, and um, they backed out in that last six months or so. And the city, I believe, is suing them for some type of remediation based on some promises that were made. It's high profile enough that it got mentioned in the various journals because of this was kind of the first one that was close to kind of shovel in the ground. And when the time came to cut the check, they chose not to move forward. So I'm sure COVID had an impact on that and a reevaluation of what made sense. But I think broadly speaking, retail's in, in big trouble. And, and it's not just malls. I mean, we talk about malls, but looking at, at high street retail, which is like Soho or Rodeo Drive or the Miracle Mile in Chicago, Fifth Avenue, Madison Avenue, pick your, pick your locale, Main Street, USA, like in my town, I live in the North Shore of Long Island, there's a lot of vacancy. And I think there's going to be a, uh, a moment where landlords and retailers, the actual tenants, have to almost form a partnership of sorts, which has not historically been the way that that model's operated. It's you sign a lease, you're going to pay me the stipulated rent. You can't pay, I'll kick you out and find someone else. I just don't think that holds water right now. It may come back, but for now, I really feel like you're almost a partner with a landlord than you are a tenant. And I think the mindset is slowly coming to realize that we had a lease signed as a, for a restaurant tenant in uh, a building, a deal we did in downtown. And essentially there's a, I won't call it a COVID term, but basically if the restaurant shut down because of city rules, there's a way in which the rent can be mitigated or deferred. You would never have seen that pre-COVID. It just would never have happened. The land would never agree to it. So I'm rambling a bit here, but yeah, there's a, a lot of changes happening in retail. Well, that's, I mean, just that the, the power dynamics shift in that way is pretty impressive and interesting. Yeah, I mean, landlord and tenant, cats and dogs, sleeping yeah. together type of deal is kind of <laughs> kind right. of unbelievable. Yeah. So getting back to sort of this question of 
risk mitigation or diversification. I think that that's a key element here because, you know, I mean, we're talking about some individual names where the quest for yield in companies that have at least some commercial real estate exposure can, has gone awry. And some, some investors are probably hurting in, if they invested in some of these names looking for some extra yield and then have sometimes been punished. So how do you think from Yield Street's perspective in terms of diversification, how should investors be thinking about diversification within the sort of the private markets or commercial real estate side of things? Yeah, you know, the way I think about it is that you always want to be diversified, have have eggs in multiple baskets. That's just like finance 101. You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. And I think a mix of private credit or private debt and public on the, on the CRE side is the right way to go. So again, we offer private investments on the Yield Street's platform, primarily in the form of, of debt investments, traditionally on the shorter duration spectrum with yields between 8 and 10% um, that often pay current coupon monthly. If you are going to, and that's, that's more liquid, right? There's no, there's no monetization event where you can actually uh, trade that investment to receive cash. So clearly, if someone needs access to capital in the near term, that should not be 100% of your allocation, but it should be some part of your allocation. The other part probably should be cash just to have available. And part should be probably REITs and or REIT bonds, right? And a diversified portfolio probably is a way to go. Um, some people maybe have a, a, a different tact to take a very convicted view on one or two positions and really can have the fortitude to kind of stick with it. I find personally for myself, that's not really the way I think about the risk. And, I, you know, some people have a harder time with that. If you are of the, of the mindset that you really uh, have a strong conviction on something and want to put the, the chips on the table, I would say by all means do that, but understand kind of what that entails should something go sideways. So I'd rather have a broad diversified pool, a mix of private credit as well as the public side. And you get a broad swath. I mean, REITs are managed, public REITs are managed by some of the smartest minds in CRE. Right? You're basically outsourcing the management, the acquisition, the leasing, and the optimization of that portfolio to people who have done this year over year and are the best in the business. Like That's a very nice partnership to have. With that being said, you're going to pay for it in the form of lower dividend yields and inherent fees in those REITs that you may not find. On the private side, it may be more direct. It may be more clear as to what you're investing in and what the collaterals looks like and uh, the project and the fee structure. And so... I think, again, I would never advise anyone to do all in one, but a diversified pool is really the way to go in my mind. That's how I think about it. Correlation is also low, right? That's something that people have to think about. When the stock market moved lower March and April, they all really moved in tandem. It wasn't like real estate was singled out as going worse or better. They all got hit, including bonds. Even bonds were lower, right? Because yes. there, was a, there, was a, there was a view. And so it almost as if a pendulum that just swings violently. When everything goes, it seems to all go at the same time. Private credit insulates you to a, a nice degree from those daily gyrations. And just because a stock market is lower does not mean the value of your loan or your real estate equity piece is lower as well. And so people have to understand that. That's not a reason, again, to put all your eggs in that basket, but it does provide you with a different risk profile that you have to be understanding of. And so that's something that I always harp on. Stocks were down 35%, you know, March 23rd, I think it was. Many of our loans performed, continue to perform, didn't miss a payment, and have continued to work through the issues. Not say we're out of the woods, but, you know, they got through it in a different manner than the equity markets, which really emotional decisions can come in where you maybe hit the sell button and you got out. And that'd be a, you know, hopefully won't be to do that. He stuck around with it. Right. Maybe if there was a daily price quote on some of those, then people might have 
<laughs> seen something during that time. Uh, it looks like we have a clarification question from an audience member. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah. so the question basically said, uh, is, it, is it inflation adjusted? Is it payout monthly? Is it is it yearly? So obviously every deal is different. So certainly look for what each deal offers. The vast majority of the transactions being put on the platform of a CRE vertical have been cash flowing, interest paying on a monthly basis. Now there are some loans that have a pick structure, so they're accruing. There's no current coupon being paid, but the vast majority are paying monthly. There are none that I can think of right now that are paid quarterly and none that are paid yearly, but they not they are not inflation adjusted, meaning the coupon does not migrate higher or lower based on inflation. It's a fixed coupon. Again, in the vast majority of cases, each deal is different, so please refer to the deal itself. But um, there is no monthly adjustment based on inflation. So if inflation should go up 2% and you're in a fixed rate loan, you do not modulate the rate. It, it stays the same. The mitigant to that is that our loans are typically shorter term in duration. So I mean, this is, it's funny, the next topic on the sheet I have is interest rate risk. So it's maybe an opportune time to talk about that. Real estate is a quasi fixed income investment, right? Whether it be either on the equity side or the debt side. On the equity side, you often have long-term leases, office, industrial, multifamily, obviously, or one-year leases and hotel or daily leases. But you have longer term leases. To the extent that the market moves higher on the rental rates, you cannot capture or monetize that higher rental rate when the lease has term. So you can only monetize that increase upon a roll. A, a tenant's actually vacating or they are leaving their space and you can outrent it for a higher price. So that's partly why I mentioned that the peaks and troughs are spread out and not as violent because you have these ongoing cash flows that smooth it out. And so if interest rates should rise and your cost of debt should go higher, let's say you're in a floating rate loan as a borrower, but your, your income stays flat, the rates have adversely impacted your NOI or your cash flow you generate. So that's what I say. It's a quasi fixed income instrument. That's what I mean. Now on the debt side as a lender, if I make a loan at 8% today and the 10 year treasury rate goes to 5%, which is kind of considered the risk free rate, clearly my 8% is not worth as much as it was the day before. In the current rate environment that we're in, the expectation from most experts is that, and I'm not an expert by any means on interest rate movement, but is that rates are going to be lower for longer. They have been since 08, and the attempt to actually migrate them higher has been kind of pushed back, and now we see it lower for longer. I would highlight, even in 2007, when LIBOR, which is a benchmark, was over 5%, you still saw properties trade for below that cost of capital. And the reason often was that people were quite bullish on where rents would go, so they were willing to pay a higher multiple or higher coupon, if you will, like a you know, higher multiple than the actual LIBOR spread. So there's actually a negative carry component there. That makes sense. Is the duration of leases changing at all given COVID and all the uncertainty? I just think of, I don't know, it's making yeah. me think of, you know, like LeBron James signing one-year deals and betting on himself. What is there been any change in terms of those things? We talked about some other ways the relationship has changed. I definitely believe that there are going to be some of those changes that you just highlighted. This started in retail probably four or five years ago, post 2009 or 10, where retailers wanted to manage like a three-year time horizon for most leases. And I think as a landlord, as you mentioned Simon again, clearly for them, the longer term of lease you have, the easier is to finance but the tenants wanted flexibility. In office, that has not been the case. The question will be, does COVID actually result in 
office tenants wanting shorter durations. Now, the counter argument to that is that most tenants spend a good deal of capital to build out their space to suit their needs. So office versus open space, kitchens, bathrooms, lighting, audiovisual. I mean, they can spend you know, millions of dollars fitting out their space for their employee experience. And so if they're committing that kind of capital, you don't want to necessarily sign into a short-term lease with the potential that the money only lasts you three or four or five years. So most office leases are typically 10 years with options. On the flip side, if I'm a landlord and I'm someone to sign a three-year lease, I'm not going to give them money to build their space out. I'll say to them, okay, I'll give you a three-year lease, but you're going to have to pay all the costs and bid it out yourself. So that would tell me to be a more slower change in the way that market evolves. I'd say in retail, it's happened already though. Interesting. Yeah. I'm picturing like, if we just go to imagination world for a second, I'm picturing a company my wife works for just recently had some staff reductions and now they're sitting on a giant office space. I think that's probably a pretty common thing happening in office space right now. And I'm wondering whether there's a way to make it more modular and have more generic flexible spaces. And maybe there will be less of a premium on sort of setting up your house the way you like it in office space going forward. You know, that's really essentially what the, the WeWorks of the world and Regis and, and all those other companies really try to focus on. I'd say pre-Gen 1 of 20, they were targeting more the freelancers or very small micro businesses, you know, one to three employees, flexibility, you know, to multiple locations and the, the interactions that resulted from those, you know, close spaces. They're migrating much more to an enterprise model where they're going to go to Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, Netflix, pick your company where they say, listen, you want to have an outpost in Portland, Oregon. You don't want to open up your own office. You want to maybe build that team up slowly. We'll give you a floor. You can expand in the space. That's, I think, really what you're talking about. And it's basically a generic build out. It's not suited for those tenant specific needs, but it meets all the needs they may have. So the answer is, I think, yes. I don't think you can count week work out. However, I do think there's going to be a, a massive shakeup in the business as there's just too much space and not enough demand right now. And so I do think that has some validity to it. There's also talk of like a new hub and spoke model for commuters. So you think about New York City as an example, right? You have people coming from primarily three demographic areas. You have Westchester, Northern New York, you have New Jersey, New Long Island. And the view is that everyone has to come into a central repository spot in Manhattan or, or some area like that. And the view is that you may actually see a pushback out to those geographic areas still maintaining a central presence in New York, but having maybe smaller satellite outposts in those markets, which historically suburban office has done poorly for the last five, 10 years. With the migration to urban markets, we could see, I don't know if the answer is going to have to be yes, but we could see that migration back out, which would benefit those smaller WeWork type tenant or uh, companies who could maybe set up those satellite spaces quite quickly. So CBD, we'll talk more about it as time evolves, but I do think that's something that people are going to try to take a stab at that and see if that's something that works. Well, I have to wonder whether people enjoy commuting into New York, go sitting in the office all day and then commuting back. I've always been curious. I've lived in New York and loved it, but living in the city was a huge part of that. We have a good question here, Mike. I want to touch on, if you don't mind. Yeah, real fees. I, yeah, yes. fees. This is, this is really worthwhile. So one complaint of the REIT market historically has been the inability to transparently see what fees are paid to, to REIT managers. So there's really two kinds of REIT managers. There's an externally managed REIT manager and an internal manager. In the external manager, there are no real employees of the REIT itself. 
it's almost like a mutual fund company, like Vanguard or Fidelity is managing this entity for a fee. It often entails maybe an asset management fee and a promote fee. So if they can be based on the assets purchased, it can be based on the income they generate. But the fees are at least oftentimes in most cases 2% and higher and could be in some cases materially higher. On the internal side, the employees of the REIT work for the REIT. There's obviously SG&A, costs for the space. And again, the fee model could be a mix of asset management fee, disposition fees, leasing fees, and other fees that are entailed and broken into the REIT itself. Again, looking at a 10K or 10Q, it's not really that clear what is being paid. And I think you need to be kind of a, a sleuth, if you will, to kind of find it out and understand it. And so I would say I'm not an accountant personally, but if you are interested, there's plenty of research online. You use Google it, you can see what the REITs are paying or the investors are really paying themselves to manage this portfolio. Now, when you think about like an app like that or some that are out there where you can just buy a stock, I don't view the free trading as a cost per se, because there is an underlying cost to owning that equity stock, right? So if you're buying SP, Simon Properties, an example, which is internally managed, if you're buying a mortgage REIT in some cases, which are externally managed, there are fees that they are extracted from managing that pool of capital. Talking about yield treat specifically, we are an SEC registered investment advisor. We do take an ongoing management fee, which is disclosed. It ranges from as little as 1%. It could go up to you know 2% in some cases, depending on the asset, the investment horizon, the, the risk we're taking down up front. But it's all disclosed. It's all in there. And I would say there is no promote structure, right? In the deals on the CRE side to date, and that may change in the future. But for now, there is no participation in the upside above those fees, right? If the underlying borrower kills it and makes a killing, you also do not participate in that upside. If our lending partner, originating partner, has some back-end fee with their bar, which never happens anyway, but if they did, we also would not participate in that. We're getting a straight management fee. So what that does is it aligns us, I think, better with our investors. I'm not optimizing for hitting home runs and getting a performance fee on the back-end. I'm optimizing for return of principal and a current consistent cash flow payment. And so that is how I think about a differentiating factor in Yield Street and maybe private equity funds or other types of non-trader REITs out there where they really have to hit a hurdle to get that promote structure in their economics for managers. We don't have that currently and we don't intend to do that right this second. So that's something I just highlight for, for that question that came in. Yeah, that's a good one. And I'm glad that someone asked that because I think it's just critical. I know in, in from the mutual fund space that everyone in the passive indexing vehicles and other such investment structures have, have led a lot of people to think that, you know, management fees are not worth paying overall. And so it's really important, I think, to consider how the fee structure plays into any investment in this environment. And I think that there are ways to earn that fee. That's one thing that we sort of have to argue over at CounterPoint Mutual Funds, that there are ways to do that. And I think, yeah, that's been obviously a, a topic of for the last, I think Vanguard started their 500 index fund in 1974 with John Vogel, right? You know, creating that removal of the active investment management and the passive and the indexing nature of it. When you think about where those fees have gone, I mean, they're basically nine, eight, nine, ten 10 basis points on these, on these funds. And so now there are plenty of funds that I do think charge a high fee that doesn't warrant it based on performance, right? And there's some data to support that, but you can't make a blanket statement. I think that same logic applies to investment managers that we compete with, as well as REITs. I mean, some, there, there's been some documented, highly public 
spats between activist investors and some managers where the fees were really egregious and didn't really generate additional returns for, this, for the equity, for the owners. It really was for the managers to, to enrich themselves at the expense of the investors. And so in one case, I know it's a high profile case, you can Google it, the external manager was actually fired by the board. The board was replaced, they were fired and a new manager came in. And the fact is that unfortunately that happens too rarely because it's very hard to actually remove a board and put a new board in. But it shed a light on the non-traded REIT space being another example, which was you know crazy. You'd put $100 into a fund and $8 of that would be eaten up by uh, commissions for the brokers. So you had 92 cents working for you day one. I mean, that's a significant, significant reduction in your ability to earn a return. And so if you're down 8% day one, that's, that's, that hurts. And so that whole industry has gone through its own reckoning and it's benefited guys like Blackstone and Starwood who have kind of changed that model and kind of turned it on its head and said, we'll charge you lower fees, some more transparency. Despite that, their fees are still about 3%. So it's not zero, it's not one, it's still high, but it's certainly a lot better than it was, you know, two, three, four years ago. One last question we're going to touch on, Mike, unless you want to, anything you want to touch on, Mike, I didn't highlight. No, no, no. I mean, I just think it's important for everyone to realize that to have a clear vision for the way that fee and management compensation structures work and to make sure that, you know, incentives are properly aligned regardless of the investment vehicle. That's just kind of my little rant there. On you that. know, I, I think that's completely accurate. I know when I invest my own capital, I, I think about that. And maybe in some ways we're almost ingrained to look for the lowest fee. That's not always the right answer. But certainly it's, it has a home in some places, whether it be, like I mentioned, indexing an S&P index fund or something like that. But there are plenty of great managers who do earn that fee and are entitled to it and have produced you know, consistent returns that you should look at. The last topic I want to talk about, a, a question that came in or that was highlighted was, um, you know, what do we expect in the fourth quarter of this year? And um, it's a great question. I don't have a great answer for most people. I think when we had spoken April and May, the view was that the fourth quarter would be one of a lot of activity as banks looked to shed problem loans and clean up their balance sheet and prepare for 21. What's transpired is that the government has really put a wrench into that thesis because they've given banks a lot of leeway to kick the can down the road, provide forbearances, and deferring those issues basically to the next year. And so any dislocation or shakeout that we had expected to happen that we could have capitalized on and to put capital to work, I think is really going to be pushed out. And so the question becomes, you have this whole huge backup of loans that you know are not performing, but are, I guess, quote, performing because of these modifications that you will see hit at one time. And so I am quite optimistic that we will see some very attractive opportunities at Yield Street on the CRE side, and we're very excited about them. I just don't know if they're the next six to eight weeks. I think they may be more like 12 to 16 weeks. So obviously when we know, you will all know because you'll see them on the platform. Hopefully you'll come and invest with us. But, you know, we are gearing up for it, girding up for it and, and looking outward. But for right now, we're not seeing as many opportunities as we would hoped. And so I think with that, Mike, I want to say on behalf of Yield Street, myself and Joe Sancio, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your insights. And to all those people watching at home or wherever you are, thanks for your time again today. Thanks for joining me, Mitch Rosen, for this webinar on CRE. And hope everyone stays well and check us out on EagleStreet.com. Take care.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment products. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.